0: Welcome to Expert Insights. This session was recorded in front of a live webinar audience on the 26th of October, 2022. The topic was depression in young women and girls. On the panel we had Dr. Alexis Whitten, research fellow and psychologist at the Black Dog Institute, Associate Professor Bronwyn Graham, clinical psychologist and researcher at the University of New South Wales, and Michaela, our lived experience representative. Chairing the session was Dr. Carol Newell and Dr. Sarah Barker. Hi
1: everyone, welcome to our podcast tonight on depression in young women and girls. I'm Carol Newell um, and I will be moderating tonight's session. Before we get started, I want to give my acknowledgement of country. Um, The Black Dog Institute would like to acknowledge the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as Australia's first people and traditional custodians. We value their cultures, identities and continuing connection to country, waters, kin and community. We want to pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and we're committed to making a positive contribution to the mental health well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people across Australia. So welcome everybody to Expert Insights for Health Professionals. So let me introduce to you our panel members tonight. So we've got Dr. Alexis Wheaton, Associate Professor Roman Graham, Michaela, who's our lived experience representative. We've also got an extra guest tonight. I'm so happy to introduce to you Dr. Sarah Barker. Sarah Barker is joining our panel because she's taking over the podcast. Um soon. So she's gonna do one this year, and she's gonna be taking it over for 2023. And I'm so delighted to be able to hand um this job over to Sarah. So um Thank welcome you, to Sarah. She's gonna co-host. You. She's gonna to co-host tonight, so you will hear from Sarah tonight as well. Thank you very
2: <laughs> much, Carol. And welcome everyone.
1: Um, first question: I'd love for everyone to just introduce yourself and tell me a little bit about. Your background expertise on this particular topic. Shall we start with Michaela? Michaela, I'd love to start with you.
3: Um, hi everyone, thanks for having me on here tonight. Um, I guess, yeah, today I'm bringing a lived experience perspective to you um, to talk about my own experience with mental health um, and having various conditions um, I also work in mental health as well. So I've studied a graduate diploma in counseling and I currently work as a mental health support worker um, and will actually be soon working in a new role, um, doing some intake and wellbeing support. So it's pretty exciting.
1: Welcome, Michaela. Thanks for that. We might move to um, Bronwyn. Bronwyn, can you introduce yourself? Absolutely.
4: Thanks, Carol. Thanks for having me tonight. Uh, so yes, my name's is Bronwyn Graham. I'm an associate professor at the University of New South Wales. Uh, so I do research predominantly on anxiety disorders, and I take a translational approach. So I look at the biological and psychological factors that contribute to the experience of fear and anxiety and the key research question that I focus on is what makes females more vulnerable to these conditions than males, um, particularly focusing on the role of fluctuations in sex hormones across the lifespan. I'm also a clinical psychologist.
1: Thanks, Rowan.
5: Alexis, what about you? Yeah, thanks so much for having me uh, on the podcast, Carol. So, my name's uh, Alexis Witten. I'm a research fellow and psychologist at the Black Dog Institute. Um, and my primary uh, area of research is really understanding how we can better personalize treatment for depression. Um, so, we know that treatments work well for some people and not for others, but For conditions like depression, we really don't understand why. So as part of my research, I'm hoping to get to the bottom of it so that we can deliver treatments that work the better first time round for people.
1: So let's start off with like a really basic question. And I know many people are practitioners here, but it's nice to just have like a, a quick summary as well, you know, to make sure that we're all on the same page. What is depression and how common is it in Australia? Why is it so important that we treat it, Alexis? Because this has been like the major document for turning the tide in depression, which we recently, Black Dog Institute recently released.
5: Yes. So depression is a common mental health condition. Um, it's the second most common condition, um, second to anxiety. And it's characterised by persistent feelings of sad mood, loss of interest or enjoyment in activities that people once enjoyed and it also is accompanied by other symptoms like sleep and appetite disturbances, um, feelings of worthlessness or trouble concentrating and making decisions Uh, and oftentimes people can experience thoughts of um, wanting to harm themselves and it's really important to note that depression can look really different person to person and have many different causes, which I'm excited to, to talk a bit more about with everyone here today.
1: Yeah. I read somewhere that um, you can have two people with depression who only overlap on one one characteristic, right, one symptom requirement. Um, So it's quite heterogeneous. But like you said, you know, it's linked to things like suicide. So it's so important that we address it.
5: Yes, yes, exactly. And it's really common in Australia. Um, so we know that uh, in at any point in somebody's life, uh, almost 16% of Australians will experience depression. And in a year, around seven and a half percent of Australians will experience depression. So it is actually quite a common thing to experience
1: what about anxiety? Um, Brian, this is like your major focus and I know that this, you know, podcast is on depression, but anxiety goes kind of hand in hand with depression, right? Yeah. Tell us a little bit about anxiety and how are the two
4: linked? Sure. So anxiety, as Alexis mentioned, is the most common mental health condition um, Australia worldwide, around about 16% um, annual prevalence uh, in, in Australia. Anxiety is kind of a catch-all sort of phrase in, in the sense that it covers a lot of discrete conditions that you might be familiar with, like specific phobia, panic disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, and also conditions like post-traumatic stress disorder. And what these conditions have in common is that there's this excessive fear or worry um, that's disproportionate to the level of threat that is realistically uh, present in the situation. Um, As you mentioned, anxiety and depression although they might seem quite different, actually are highly overlapping. So there's lots of um, other features of anxiety like fatigue, irritability, um, sleep problems that overlap with depression. Anxiety is also associated with self-harm and and suicide And it's very common for someone who is diagnosed with depression to also be diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. So they're comorbid in that regard. Uh, But also it's the case that somebody who develops an anxiety disorder at one point in time may then go on to develop depression at another point in time, even if the anxiety itself um, is relatively well managed. So yeah, there's a huge overlap there.
1: Yeah. Are there any differences between men and women, girls and boys in terms of vulnerability to these two disorders? You know, in terms of overall prevalence rates? Has have there been Any big reviews around these differences, Bronwyn?
4: Yeah, and, and, you know, it's interesting because in research there's often not not a lot of things that we can kind of say with confidence, but when it comes to sex and gender differences with respect to the prevalence of conditions like anxiety and depression, uh, the data is really clear. So uh, women are twice as likely to be diagnosed with these conditions um, relative to men. And we see the the difference in the prevalence rates emerging around about puberty. So some some studies suggest a little bit earlier, um, but at least around puberty. And then those differences really persist across a lot of the lifespan. And then things start to equalize again after menopause. Now, there's lots of things that we can say about that, right? But I think the most common question is, well, is this real, right? Because prevalence is who has been diagnosed. And of course, there's all sorts of biases that might come with who is being diagnosed. I think the the most common question that people ask is, well, is this just because men are being underdiagnosed, right? There might be a sense of stoicism um, that men are not coming forth and receiving these diagnoses and absolutely there's there's definitely uh, that element there there's all sorts of factors I know we're going to discuss it tonight that can contribute to these differences so although the data is very clear what's underlying this is quite complex and I'm I'm looking forward to diving into that with you and, and with the audience tonight.
1: Isn't that true of any time we talk about mental health and psychological, the answer is it all depends and there's never one single definitive answer, right? So um, it's so nuanced in terms of figuring out what's causing this difference. So Alexis, you know, you've just been, Heading up Turning the Tire and Depression Report. And for everyone here, we want to remind everyone to head to the Black Dog Institute and have a look at this report. I loved it. I really, as a practitioner, found it so easy to read. But it updated my knowledge on depression in Australia because sometimes it's really hard to find that paper that's, you know, locally relevant as well. Um, but you highlighted some really major trends in depression and areas of priorities for intervention. And as Bronwyn was saying, you know, it, it peaks around that, that adolescent age, um, but you're also finding something else new, right, in that report. Can you walk us through some of the major recent findings in women and girls?
5: Yeah, so I think there's been this growing concern that common mental health conditions like depression and anxiety might be becoming more common, particularly in young people. Um, And so as part of this report, we used a whole bunch of data from um, publicly available national surveys, as well as uh, our own research from the Black Dog Institute, and asked the question, well, is the prevalence of depression actually increasing? And has it been doing so uh, over the past two decades? So not just around COVID, um, but really before then. And what we found was that there's been quite a striking increase in the prevalence of depression in adolescents and young adults under the age of 25. So the prevalence has more than doubled in Australia in these age groups. And what it seems to be driven in part by is quite a rapid increase in depression prevalence in adolescent girls and young women. So we're seeing uh, that over the past 10 to 15 years, uh, rates of depression uh, have jumped from around 6% in adolescent girls up to 19%. And similarly, in young women, it was around 8.5%. It's jumped up to 19%. So this is a really big jump. It has increased as well in adolescent boys and young men, but not quite to the same extent. Um, As part of the report, we also looked at uh, First Nations mental health as well, and we saw that this pattern was exacerbated even more so in young First Nations adolescent girls and women. And I guess to a point that Bronwyn made uh, earlier about Uh, how prevalence is is calculated and and what it means. So we thought, well, is this a genuine increase in depression prevalence or does it just reflect a greater willingness in some uh, groups of the population to disclose mental ill health? And to test this, one of the things we looked at was uh, the rates of hospitalisation due to self-harm. So this includes um, non-suicidal self-harm, but also attempts at suicide. And we know that um, this data is a bit less uh, vulnerable to changes in how people disclose mental health. Uh, And we found the same pattern, particularly for adolescent girls, where rates of hospitalisation due to self-harm have really been increasing over the last 10 years. So I think the take-home means is that this is likely a genuine increase rather than just changes in how we're reporting uh, mental ill health.
1: Yeah. So I'm going to change tack a little bit because I want to bring Michaela into the conversation. Um, Michaela, love for you to to tell us a little bit about your lived experience journey with mental health, because it allows us to explore some of these things, right? Is it like willingness to disclose or not disclose, right? Is it about help seeking what's happening there? So could you tell us a little bit about your journey in mental health um, for you?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's been a very interesting journey as they all are. (laughs) Um, I guess for me, I've always had like, uh, I've had some issues with mental health for, I mean, a long time, probably it started around when I was a teenager. That's kind of when I started to notice it. Um, but I never really looked into it too much because I felt like whenever I talked about it, a lot of people just kind of put it down to, oh, that's normal. Um, It's, you know, typical to feel that way. So I didn't really feel like it was anything to worry about. But then as I got older, it kind of seemed to intensify a lot. And I knew deep down that something wasn't quite right. Um, And then it got to about sort of 2020 um, when we're in, you know, harsh lockdown and everything. That's when I really knew, like, all right, I have to do something about this because this has just really gotten to a point where, you know, I feel like I just need some help. I need to get through this with some assistance. And um, it was quite difficult at the time. I had actually recently just moved from Adelaide at that point as well. So I was already feeling quite isolated. Then we're in a lockdown and then it was really hard to access services because of the lockdown. Um, there were quite large wait lists. Um, And also at the time, you know, I didn't have a lot of money either. So having to do sort of like a first consultation with a psychiatrist, um, that was a huge barrier as well, having to pay sort of an upfront amount before I could get the rebate as well. So everything kind of, you know, snowballed really quickly that year. Um, And then initially I was diagnosed with bipolar. Uh, I am sort of in the process of being re diagnosed um, as having ADHD instead, um, as well as sort of uh, BPD traits, uh, as well as uh, CPTSD as well. So what I've kind of learned from this journey is that it's not actually about the label that's attached to what I'm feeling. It's about sort of understanding how I sort of function, you know, mentally, what sort of things helped me to get by. And I guess just sort of how I can really find ways to reach my, my best potential. Um, and then I think because of this experience as well, it really sort of motivated me to enter the mental health field as a professional as well, rather than just a consumer, because I had experienced firsthand like a lot of different barriers and a lot of different things that just kind of made me see the gaps that existed and I wanted to provide an experience that I wish I had had as a consumer to people who are experiencing similar journeys and it was really about empowering other people and helping them uh, to find some individualised care that suited them on their journey and was just really quite down to earth as well. So I found that working in like mental health support, it's been a really amazing grounding journey for me to, you know, walk along these, you know, paths with people to help them find wellness in a way that's just really collaborative and, um, you know, it really takes away any feeling of authority over their mental health and provides them with agency.
1: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it does. And Michaela, you point to something really important here, right? Um, you know, one of the when we're talking about prevalence rate, we did ask the question, you know, are women more willing to disclose or more willing to report it? And you were willing to report it, but you were dismissed as, you know, potentially like it's actually normal for girls to feel this way, right? It's actually mm-hmm. like just a phase that you're going through did you have any other experiences of barriers that was sort of uniquely associated with being like a woman or a girl um, that made it hard for you to get that support?
3: Yeah I think it's such a good point honestly I feel like as women there is sort of that attitude of you know it's normal to have fluctuations in hormones and therefore fluctuations in mood And I feel that, you know, that is really a huge barrier in itself into, you know, seeking help with these sorts of things. Um, I found even just sort of the stigma that exists around mental health is also really, you know, quite difficult because, you know, when you suspect that you might have, you know, a mental health condition, there's that fear of, I guess, how people perceive you as well. Um, I know initially when I was diagnosed with bipolar, talking about that with other people around me, such as family and friends, there was a real lack of understanding as to what that meant. And sometimes even it felt like, you know, particularly with family, um, there was like a fear almost of, you know, what does this mean? You know, should we be concerned about you? What do we do? It was really having to just educate people around me which was quite difficult because I was already having to educate myself, so it felt very taxing to then have to educate everyone I was talking to. So I felt like, you know, it was quite a difficult journey having to navigate all of that, and I think, you know, I was quite persistent with it all, but for some people they might find it too hard. They might go, well, this is just too hard. I don't want to go down this path. And it's so understandable because it is is—it's never linear. It is very up and down and it does take a lot of education and, you know, a lot of conversations, especially difficult conversations as well. So, you know, while it can be a barrier in itself, just sort of seeking that help, once you do have that help, that can be a barrier too because you're trying to discover who you are and, you know, how you can sort of, find your way in the world. And then suddenly there are people asking questions of you and trying to, you know, figure it out. And, and it just becomes like, I don't want to teach people about this, but I also want to at the same time, because I want to be understood. So it's sort of like a very, yeah, very tricky thing for
1: sure. But you know what you mentioned, you know, very earlier, like earlier on, it's less about the label, but more about understanding yourself, but also this idea of a universal right to support, right, whether it's like to interventions, or even just people having that awareness, so it's funded for research. All those elements are really important, right? So, um, and and you mentioned the other thing, which was this came out of lockdown. And I know this is not in one of our questions, so I'm going to just head back to Alexis. The data that you got with this rising prevalence rate, was it? I assume this is pre. Some of the data was pre-lockdown, or do you think lockdown contributed to some of that rising prevalence rate?
5: Yeah. So this is something that we looked really closely at. And although across the board, across all ages, we we saw a spike in multiple different types of markers of mental ill health. But what was really interesting was when we went back further, uh, about 10, 12 years or so, we can see that there's been this rising trajectory of depression prevalence. So it's not just COVID and the pandemic, there seems to be something that's happened beforehand that may be contributing. Um, So I think that's, we really need to look closely at that and understand why.
1: So what are some of the hypothesized causes for this rising gap in um, girls and women versus boys and um, men?
5: So one of the questions we asked when we were presented with this data that that showed um, that over the last 10 years depression has been rising, we said, well, you know, what is it about how adolescence and young adulthood uh, that has changed that could be contributing? Are there risk factors for depression that seem to be increasing? And when we looked at young adults, um, particularly young women, this is a time of life where many people are leaving their support networks, moving out of home, entering the workforce, and potentially trying to become financially stable and independent for their first time. And over this similar period of time, we've seen quite a substantial change in levels of financial strain in young people. So there's been a relatively slow or even lack of wage growth growth in this uh, young cohort. And this generation is predicted to be the first not to experience income gains relative to the generation prior. So that's a really big thing. Um, We also know that uh, the pathways from schooling to work are becoming much more complex and uncertain. So now it's, it's no longer enough to get a university degree and expect to have a secure economic future. That's not the case at all. Um, we're seeing this increased casualization of work. Um, and with all of these factors, we know that women tend to be hit more hard by these, these factors. So they tend to have lower wages. They tend to work in more secure um, jobs like hospitality, caring professions, um, and it can make it really hard for them. Um, so, yeah, I think there are these broader socioeconomic factors that have changed that that are really contributing.
1: What about depression in our young girls? Because there's also, you know, the, the rising influence of social media and screen time. I, I work in adolescence, right, and I get asked this question all the time and there's this assumption that, Screen time is really bad, social media is really bad, and I would love to have a better idea of whether that's a contributor to poorer mental health in our young girls.
5: Like I six. don't think we could have done a report on rising depression prevalence in teens without looking at things like screen time. Um, and, you know, this, is, this relationship has been looked at quite a lot now. There, there's many studies on it Um, many different types of studies, Um, and we took a a bit of a different approach. Um, We looked at gender differences in the relationship between screen time and depression, Uh, and as part of this, we drew on data from the largest study of adolescent mental health in Australia called the Future Proofing Study, which we're running here at Black Dog. Um, And what was really interesting is we found that across all adolescents. As the number of hours of recreational screen time increased, the likelihood that they would have problematic levels of depression also increased. However, this relationship was much stronger in adolescent girls than in adolescent boys. It started at almost as little as one hour of screen time a day for girls, but was only evidence at around five hours, so quite a lot for boys. And so we said, well, you know, what could possibly explain this gender difference? And we went through um, the top likely candidates. So we said, you know, is increased screen time resulting in girls' evaluating their, themselves negatively, you know, their um, their bodies, their images uh, and things like that. And we found that although this did contribute to depression in girls, it didn't explain the link between screen time and depression in girls. So it was still there when we control for that. We also looked at other things like um, whether the effect of screen time on sleep was more magnified in girls because we know that if adolescents lie awake at night on their phones um, it can really have detrimental impacts on sleep. We also found that this didn't explain why it was stronger in girls than in boys and we went down the list of other things as well. We looked at cyberbullying, does that explain it? Um, Ostracism and changes in social support. And in the end, we found that none of these likely culprits explained why the relationship between depression and screen time was stronger in girls than boys. Now we need uh, more opportunity research to really understand this, but we flagged an alternate possibility, which is that rather than screen time or social media causing depression in adolescents or girls in particular, it could be that girls are more likely to jump online when they're feeling depressed uh, as a way to seek help and it may not always be an effective way to cope. Uh, But again, it's really hard for us to understand uh, correlation versus causation with this data, Um, so we'll be looking at at it in the follow-up phases to this study that is a
1: really interesting hypothesis. Bronwyn, did you want to say something? To see? I, I was
4: just going <laughs> to say there's actually quite a nice alignment with what you're finding there, Alexis, and some of the data that looks at when you, uh, because let me back up a little. One of the theories as to why uh, females tend to experience greater rates of PTSD as opposed to males is that uh, they are exposed to different types of trauma. Now that's absolutely the case, right? We we know that there is solid data for that. But we can also take data where we know that females and males have been exposed to the same kind of trauma, and we find that even then, you you still see. Uh, this this prevalence disparity uh, where females are developing PTSD at higher rates than males. So the alignment that I see there is that the situation is the same, right? The screen time is the same. The content is, is the same. But what might be different is the way that Uh, boys and girls are reacting to that Um, maybe the way that they're thinking about it afterwards or what they do with their behavior afterwards Uh, are they dwelling on the content afterwards right so all of those kind of hidden processes that we know are so important to how we ultimately end up feeling and there's a lot of data that suggests that things like Thinking styles. So, you know, do do you do you think repetitively, negatively? Do you worry? those sorts of things really do seem to differ between males and females. Why that happens, we don't know. It's probably got a lot to do with early social conditioning processes that happen early in life rather than being some innate biological difference. Um, But I I wonder if there's a possibility for that as as a mechanism.
1: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you're talking about like, are they using... um you know, unhealthy coping mechanism thereafter that could worsen it, didn't cause it necessarily. Um, and that just suggests that there's such a nuanced approach to how we think about each factor that may be a contributor or consequence, right, of, of um mental health conditions. So, Ron, got a good question for you here. We're talking about puberty in girls. So obviously we've got to talk a little bit about biological factors such as sex home hormones. Could they account for some differences um, for females? Um, can they account for some of these differences that we're seeing as well?
4: Yeah. So I'm going to be a bit sneaky with my response to this question I, because I, I want to I want to preface it by saying that you know, I don't know why this difference exists, and my my strong suspicion is that if we were able to scrub out all of the social Differences, right, in terms of status in society, the types of stresses that um, people of different genders are exposed to. I don't think that there'd be much left. I think that that we would see fairly equal rates. But, and here's the big thing: that doesn't mean that biology isn't playing a role in different ways, not necessarily creating opportunities to make people more vulnerable impacting the way that these kinds of conditions emerge and progress. So we have very good data that shows that risk for anxiety and depression increases during times of hormonal flux in females, biological females. So this is the onset of puberty. This is across the menstrual cycle. So we know that females experience greater Uh, levels of depression, risk of suicide, uh, anxiety. During that time when hormones, sex hormones uh are at their peak and starting to drop. So that really kind of rapid transition right before the onset of menstruation, that's a very consistent finding across different conditions. It's not for everybody, it is a subset of people. Um, So like with everything to do with mental health, um, there are individual differences, but we know that that is a phenomenon. Um, It's also the case that pregnancy and postpartum are periods that are associated with uh, greater risk for new onset mental health conditions but also exacerbation or relapse of pre-existing conditions and um, also perimenopause. So, yeah, it's a a fun old ride. Really making (laughs) me look
1: forward to my future, Bron.
4: (laughs) After after menopause, it's it's all up best best apparently
2: (laughs) and it's interesting to me Bronwyn that each of those um kind of like times of hormonal transition are also associated with big social transition as well there's Mm -hmm. huge leaps that a person has to make at those times so it's actually very dual well there are lots of forks kind of um yeah interesting I'm so
4: glad that you raised that Sarah because that it it muddies the waters doesn't It it because you could say look but, but these times are highly stressed. They're highly emotionally charged mm-hmm. times in people's mm-hmm. lives. So that's where the non-human animal research comes into it. And we actually ah. see the same patterns in rats. Wow. Right? And rats are not, they do not have the same no. conceptions of gender, right? They have no conception of gender. They have um, very different experiences across motherhood and their own menstrual cycle. And so I think that there is evidence that this is a biologically sort of evolutionarily conserved mechanism, notwithstanding that, of course, all of the social, you know, ab- emotional, um, uh, cultural differences that occur at those important times of life are also going to be contributing in humans.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. All, all it does show is that it's a credible contributor when we see it in rats, but that doesn't, I mean, for me, I'm like, that doesn't discount um, the interaction between, you know, say the onset of menstruation and girls dropping out of sports. And exercise and that could plunge their mood because exercise is so important for maintaining mood, right? So it could account for those kind of things as well, but they are all credible contributors and individual differences in how much each of those factors kind of contribute to the low mood in that individual. So that's fascinating, Rowan. Um, I'm going to cycle back to Michaela now, right? It wasn't just, um, I've got here, down here as one of the questions. Uh, I got so caught up in thinking about rats at the moment. (laughs) I'm like, okay, now I'm going to have to cycle back here because I used to work in rats as well. I'm like, I want to see graphs, Rowan, but that's after the talk. (laughs) (laughs) So you struggle with, um, so it's not just ADHD and bipolar, you also struggle with, physical ailments as well like we're just talking about you know menstruation right or perimenopausal times or after pregnancy but you also uh, experienced the physical ailment related to being a woman and that made it hard for getting support can you tell us a little bit about this as well because it really does illustrate this interaction really well exactly what we've been talking about
0: Yeah,
3: absolutely, Um, you know, because obviously I don't have enough uh, struggles going on. I also have endometriosis as well, which uh, you would know is actually relatively uh, common amongst women, and it is really quite um, a struggle in the sense that a lot of women who do have endometriosis uh, do not get diagnosed for a very long time as well. And it's, again, related to that idea of, you know, Um, being perceived of, oh, this is normal, you know, we're supposed to have cramps, we're supposed to feel pain every month. But again, um, you know, you have to kind of listen to your body and have that agency to say, no, something is not right. (laughs) Um, So yeah, that was definitely part of my experience. Um, And having you know, to go through, I guess, all of the the physical pain, um, having surgery, all of that that comes with endometriosis, that did impact my mental health as well. I would say, um, you know, especially when it came to body image, uh, which again is an a pretty common struggle amongst women who have endometriosis is that it affects how they view their body, because when you're in constant pain, um, you know, that connection to yourself is really quite disrupted. Um, And I I also found just, you know, because it comes for me personally, anyways, um, it comes with, you know, experiencing a lot of bloating and things like that, that sort of affected how I perceived my image as well. Um, So I think endometriosis is just really, again, one of those struggles as a woman where you have to, you know, really argue <laughs> a lot, which is quite difficult. Um, for me on my journey, it was this thing of, you know, I knew something wasn't right. When I saw the doctor, they kind of passed it off for a long time. And I had to really put my foot down and say, no, I think this is what it is and I'm going to look into it. And I had to see several doctors before I could get a referral. And the only reason I did get referred was because I had, you know, in sort of a, an offhanded kind of conversational way mentioned, oh, well, you know, my mom's got it, my sister's got it. And then suddenly one of the doctors said, hey, actually there's a link here. Yeah, let's take this seriously and look into it. And then sure enough, I had it when, you know, um, we looked into it via surgery. So Yeah, it's, it's really, it's quite difficult. Um, But, you know, now that I've sort of caught on to it, you know, I've been able to manage it a lot better. But it's just that, that idea of, you know, again, we shouldn't have to, you know, go through this long journey of diagnosis, it should be a lot more focused on, you know, if we believe something isn't right, we should be listened to.
1: Yeah. Tess has actually mentioned in the Q&A, you know, it's just the classic concept of hysteria in women. Sometimes it's hard to be taken quite seriously because everybody suffers from period pain and for it to keep going for so long and for it to be painful is going to have an impact on your mental health, I imagine. Right. So Alexis, what are some of the barriers that girls and women face in terms of seeking support for something like depression?
5: Well, I think Michaela's really um, highlighted uh, some of the issues around being brushed off. And it's really interesting, isn't it, that when uh, women and girls often have experiences where they've sought help for mental health problems, and they're either brushed off as not being um, too severe or, you know, um, part of normal life. And then when they seek help for physical health problems, they're often attributed to uh, things like anxiety So there's a lot of uh, experiences that women have where they go to seek help for physical or mental health problems and they're dismissed. Um, So I think that's one one potential barrier. Um, If we're looking at some of the other, I guess, practical barriers, um, mental health treatment can be really expensive. Uh, And as we know from this report, um, that we we looked at um, the financial situation and many women can't afford uh, 12 sessions of therapy. Many women don't have um, that financial buffer uh, to allow them to seek the support they need. I think there's, there can also be some concerns um, around what the implications of seeking support could be. Um, so we know that uh, there can be a fear of For example, losing custody of children uh, if you seek help and you're deemed to be unfit as a mother. So that's a really big concern that some women face. Um, And then when we talk to women who've experienced, uh, for example, inpatient treatment, um, that can often be quite a traumatic experience, um, particularly if they're on mixed-gender wards, if they've had a history of trauma, Um, and they've got, you know, um, staff exerting power over them, that can be quite a distressing situation. Uh, So there are a myriad of factors, um, but it it can be really hard uh, for women to seek support when they need it.
1: And does this also link in with something like the fact that, I mean, our research, are they geared towards women? Um, And I'm going to turn to Bronwyn now. Do we have, like equal research attention to interventions for women. What what does the research look like historically?
4: Again, I'm very pleased to say this is an area where I can confidently say we have (laughs) clear-cut answers to that question. No, no, the research that is done not just in mental health but across all biomedical areas is absolutely biased towards a male physiology. Um, so we we do research obviously in humans, we also do research in non-human animal populations, particularly when we're looking at things like pharmacological interventions. Um, and over 90% of the work in those non-human animal populations is done in males. Um, and in humans, Although most studies do include uh, male and female participants, sex and gender analysis is very, very rarely done. So when we're looking at the data, we don't know, did did these data come from male or female? What what was the gender of these uh, participants? And so what this means is that we can't identify going back to a point that Alexis raised very early on in the podcast, for whom are these treatments working? Is there any moderating effect of sex or gender? Um, You know, for a long time, women of childbearing age were excluded from research. I'm talking up until the 90s. So a lot of the treatments that we receive today have been validated, tested, demonstrated to be both safe and effective Predominantly in males. Why so, are researchers so scared of us, Rowan? Well, there's a couple of reasons. So, what one goes back to that childbearing age factor, which is that there is a concern that if someone has the capacity to be pregnant, that they could participate in a trial. Again, this is particularly for for biomedical research, and uh you know, unintentionally harm a, a developing baby. Um, there's, a, I think, a fairly enduring belief that. Um, males and females are not that different aside from reproductive functioning um, or that any uh, sex difference in prevalence of health conditions is purely due to social factors um, now that could be true that's the thing that could be true but that doesn't mean that the same treatments are going to work equally effective effectively in in males and females because of biological differences and then the biggest reason is the pesky menstrual cycle. It's it there is this idea that it creates variability in data, which means that when you collect data from female participants, the data will be noisy. It'll be harder to tell whether some effect is. Um, is, is happening right so you know let's say a, a drug whether that drug is is being effective um, because of the added variability that the menstrual cycle brings and that that bias is both in human research and in uh, non-human animal research wow
2: so things are very skewed then
4: gosh it's a big problem
2: So we're too
1: similar, we can't be included. We're too dissimilar, we can't be
4: included. Can't win here, Bron. (laughs) Yeah, those two ideas just don't fit together, do they, right? (laughs) Because if, if the menstrual cycle is having such a big impact, then of course that says that there are meaningful differences. Mm, And it all
1: just leads to like one outcome, which is the neglect of women in research and appropriate interventions. Yeah. Um,
4: And and some countries have taken steps, significant steps to correct this bias. So like America, um, the NIH has introduced that you need to um, include sex as a biological variable in in your uh, proposals to get grant funding to do research. We don't have anything like that in Australia, right? We don't have any mandates requiring us to um, to have equal sexes um, to to analyze the data, um, report the data separately for for different sexes or gender.
1: Yeah. So, if you want to start a petition, I'd be ready to sign it now. So, that'd be really good.
2: Yeah, and considering the diversity of gender too, you know, like yeah, there would be other groups too that don't fit into male or female categories um, that, yeah, are being missed out on too. Mm. That's
1: a really interesting question on that, that I might um, um, shoot off to Alexis for this one. Um, Were there any non-binary adolescents accounted for and where does this sit in terms of the differences you were seeing for depression?
5: Yeah, so we actually looked at uh, in the adolescent group, We looked at adolescents who identified uh, as sexuality diverse uh, and or as gender diverse, and what was really interesting and quite sobering is that the prevalence of depression was almost double that of what we saw in uh, heterosexual females. Um, So there's almost this compounding impact or a a pattern that we're seeing where um, Uh, young people who are identifying as as sexuality or gender diverse are experiencing even higher rates of mental ill health. And again, um, you know, I think there's this big question here that we often try to talk about. Is it biology? Is it the environment? Um, But I I like the way that um, as our discussion unfolds, we're really seeing that it's quite a tangled web there. Um, but we we really are quite far behind in our understanding of mental ill health and depression in non-binary individuals. So this is another major area where um, we really need more research, particularly on things like treatments, um, social determinants.
1: Absolutely. Um, I'm just having a look at whether there are any questions on here. Um, that we could answer tonight. This is a loaded one, Greg. That's that's massive. Regarding neuroscience perspective, Ron, does nurturing system play a role? That's a big one I'm throwing at you. Could you answer, you've got a definitive one for this one? No?
4: Yes? (laughs) Of course I do. I've got all the answers. (laughs) Does the nurturing system play a role? I'm trying to understand, Greg, what you might mean by the nurturing system. Um, So my guess is uh, would it be thinking about the impact of our gendered um, perceptions or our our gender constructs on the way that our brain might change, right? So there's, there's a whole idea that, look, at a at an innate biological level, when we are born, there are no differences, meaningful differences in the brain between biological males and females. But the brain is very plastic, um, which means that it changes according to the different experiences that we have day to day. And of course, from the moment that we're born, we are exposed to gendered expectations, right? Right down from the way that we, we talk to little babies. So we'll, we'll talk in a nice high Soft voice to female babies, and we'll talk in a rough voice, and we, and even the way we interact with babies will be very different um, when they are biological males, and this impacts our brains, right? Um, because our brains are primed to change according to our interactions. So, if I've interpreted your your question correctly, then yeah, that there is that role. So, of course, um, that there, there's that interaction that is happening. Absolutely. So um, I might leave the final word to Michaela.
1: You know, we want to have a, well, we've got practitioners listening, but we've got quite a diverse audience sometimes, right? Just people who are not even in the health, uh, who are not even health providers might be in our podcast as well, but I'd love for you to just provide us with maybe one really important takeaway as a, As somebody who is a lived experience, what could we do to improve like outcomes when working with women and um, mental health? A great question. Um, I think,
3: you know, when I think of, you know, professionals uh, providing care to us as consumers, I think it really comes down to just us being the experts of our own mind and our own body. I think when it comes to providing individualized care and inclusive care, we really need to see people for who they are as the individual and respect their perspective, their experience and what they're saying as well. I think we need to really respect all the intersectionality that comes with it as well, because when we think about accessible care, we need to really make it accessible by looking at us as individual people rather than by doing things by the book per se. Um, I know that when it comes to research and things like that, we want to look at the statistics and what really shows to be the best approach for things. But I think it also comes down to applying those approaches and those modalities to each person based on their experience and what they want for themselves and what they hope to achieve um, and just looking at them as a whole.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much for that, Michaela. I'm just going to reshare the screen now um, because I'm mindful of keeping to time. Thank you to our amazing panel members. I mean, I've gotten some key messages here, which is that there are certainly barriers, um, in terms of treatment seeking, um, and even like getting some sort of a diagnosis, getting the ball rolling can be really, um, can be really challenging. Um, but that, that prevalence rate is rising and the answer is not very easy, right? It's not one thing that we can point to There's biology hormones, there's, um, things like socioeconomic factors, uh, but the other big message is we don't have enough research and funding in this area right looking at these individual differences and women and girls are one group but as somebody's pointed out in the audience so uh um, people who are non-binary as well. And that's really important. Um, so, you know, some really important takeaways from the podcast tonight. Um, before everyone goes, I want to just remind everyone to hop onto the Black Dog Institute. We have so many tools and we're constantly developing um, new resources for our community. There's My Compass from Black Dog Institute and eCouch by the Australian National University. And of course, we've got uh, This Way Up is one of my favourite programmes. Um, it is an online CBT cognitive behaviour therapy uh, suite. Um, I think it's for a small fee Um, and you can do it, you know, in like six to 12 sessions Um, and it works really well. I know as a private practitioner, I shouldn't say this, but it actually works really well. I think anything that makes treatment intervention more accessible to people, the better it is. Um, And In addition, we've got TEN as well. Um, TEN is really interesting, it's the Essential Network for Health Practitioners. So it's specifically designed for people working in health and I'm talking about psychologists, right? um counselors out there, uh, doctors as well, you know, um, we work so hard in terms of providing care for others that sometimes we don't pay attention to our own mental health. And so 10 offers self-guided mental health screening, evidence-based tools, peer support, digital mental health programs. Please check us out. If you just put in the Essential Network, Black Dog Institute, um, you'll be able to find us. Hopefully, Helen's already on top of that and chat box as well. Um, But, you know, we've got the Essential Network. Please do do have a look at it um, for all the health practitioners who are listening in today. Do connect with us. We will have um, future webinars and podcasts. now, reminder that the next podcast is going to be hosted by the amazing Sarah Barker. Sarah, <laughs> have we decided on a topic? Because we usually... I, speak the
2: well, topic. I think we have. I think we're actually looking at mental health professionals and burnout. Oh. Um, so, yes, yeah, so we're we're firming it up, but that's what and and not so much so burnout, but also what we can do as we go into two thousand and twenty-three to. Yeah, really protect ourselves and um, set us up for a good year because it has been a challenging uh, few past few years, really cumulative. So yeah, so really interesting research that we're looking at um, to speak about there, as well as um, yeah, some of the helpful, practical things we can do to um, look after ourselves and keep longevity um, in our in our practice and excellent practice too.
1: That's a lovely podcast to end the year on. I'm handing yeah. over the the mantle to you, which is just my headphones. I'm just handing it to you
2: now. <laughs> thank you, Carol, and thank you for all your years of wonderful podcasts. I have so enjoyed listening to you. You're an um, amazing, um, yeah, moderator, and they're big shoes to fill. So I, um, yeah, thank you. You've done a beautiful job.
1: It's been a pleasure. And thank you to our amazing panel members tonight. Mm. Thank you, Bronwyn, Alexis, and Michaela. I don't know if you've seen chat, but uh, so many words of praise uh, for you tonight in sharing your experience because we know that, you know, it takes a lot of courage to be able to share that experience. So thank you so much. We loved your story tonight. Thank you, everyone, and good night.
0: Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, subscribe to and review Black Dog Institute on iTunes or your preferred podcasting platform. If you're interested in knowing more about our educational programs and research, please visit our website at blackdoginstitute.org.au.